Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number four, recorded in November 2018, and today I talk with Lisa Higgins. Lisa has a background in intensive care physiotherapy, has worked as an intensive care research coordinator, has a Master of Public Health majoring in epidemiology and biostatistics. Lisa is a research fellow at the ANZICS Research Centre in Melbourne and is also completing her PhD in the Economic Analysis of Resuscitation and Sepsis. As well as all of this, Lisa also manages to control three children and talks in this interview about the challenge of saying no, putting family first and trusting in your decisions. We also talk about the importance and challenges of consumer engagement in research, choosing appropriate tools for clinical trials, and the importance of health economic evaluation. Naturally, she also has some great advice for anyone considering a PhD. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy the interview with Lisa Higgins. Okay, so thank you. Today we're here with Lisa Higgins at the ANZIC RC um, at Monash University in Melbourne. And it's a stunning day outside today. It's going to be about 30 degrees. So um, I've definitely turned on the weather uh, this side of the Tasman. <laughs> I think it's been raining back in Auckland. So it's quite nice to come over here. So thanks, Lisa, for your time. And um, so we've known each other for a little while now, mainly through the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. And But you started life as a physiotherapist. I did start life as a physiotherapist. It seems like a very, very long time ago. So how long is it since you practised as a physio? Oh, I think the last time I practised as a physio would have been 2002 or 2003. I kept up my registration for a while while I was um, a research coordinator just to keep up my insurance in case I was playing with a ventilator, things like that. Um, but I haven't been registered for over 10 years now. Yeah, I think that's quite a common thing, isn't it? For those of us who move from a very clinical job into a research job, just that sort of desire to keep hold of (laughs) that clinical practice. I think I was pretty good at letting go pretty early compared to a lot of my friends and colleagues who who I've got a friend who's worked in research for more than 10 years and still has her registration and still has to work a certain number of clinical hours every year yeah. to maintain it. And I think, oh, it gets 10 harder. years, really? Yeah, Just, yeah. yeah. It gets yeah. harder and harder, doesn't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, but I was always an ICU physio after doing all my initial rotations. Yeah. And then how did you get into the research side of things? It's, it's, actually, a, it's actually really interesting. It's a, um, I, I did my MPH back in the early 2000s um, and I always had a really strong research interest so research is quite a big component of the physio degree well at least at Melbourne Uni it is mm-hmm. and I won the research prize at uni and, and just loved research so I was always and I was involved in research from my first physio job like as a grade one and so I was always going to I always loved it and then I did my MPH and was really enjoying it and so when we came back, we were living in the UK for a little bit, and when we came back and I was looking for work having, you know, coming back to Australia, I took a locum role as a physio um, while I was looking for research jobs. And so then I found my first research job in, in respiratory medicine at the Austin in a non-invasive ventilation trial um, and loved it. And so that's, yeah. you know, from that moment on, I just loved research. It was always going to be... I mean, I loved the clinical side of things, but the research just spoke to me. It was always going to be mm. what I wanted to do. So, yeah, so once I was in that respiratory medicine trial and then I transitioned into ICU, um, when a role came up, although it was a little bit of a sliding doors moment, I, um, <laughs> I'd applied for two roles. One was teaching physio, teaching cardiothoracic physio at Melbourne Uni, and one was being an ICU research coordinator at the Alfred Hospital. An hour before 
my Alfred interview, I got offered the Melbourne Uni teaching role. <laughs> and then I thought it was probably, I thought I was going to accept it and I thought it was probably a little bit late to cancel my interview. You know, it was in an hour. Yeah. They were probably already doing interviews. So I went to my interview and went, oh, my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> so I turned down the Melbourne role and took the Alfred role. And I always said that, that, yeah. that as a bit of a sliding doors moment. I yeah. could have ended up physio-focused and teaching. Yeah. Um, just goes to show you never know what's going to happen really, do you? You don't. I, yeah. yeah. I, I, I look back to that and I just think I had no intention when I was in that ICU Alfred interview of taking the job. I just thought it was too rude to cancel it an hour before. <laughs> so I turned up with absolutely no intention of even, even going considering the job yeah. should I, you know, be offered it. And lo and behold it. <laughs> so what do you think made you accept the job? So at the, I was interviewed by, interestingly, so my interview panel was Jamie Cooper, Andrew Davies <laughs> and Lynn Murray. And they were fabulous. And I was yeah. fascinated. You know, they spoke about, you know, this is back in the early 2000s and they spoke about the trials. Jamie had done hypertonic saline and, you know, at the time that was so groundbreaking to do a pre-hospital trial in critically mm. patients in the 90s. Yeah. Um, it was just fascinating. And I loved ICU. Like I loved yeah. working clinically in ICU and I suppose if I, I just thought, oh, I get to keep my hand in and, mm. and it's... And it's I get to completely focus on research. And I just loved what they spoke about in the interview. I think that's what made yeah. it. Yeah. And so you moved into the research coordinator type position. Yep, so there. I did that at the I did that at the Alfred. And then I stopped that when my husband got a role in Sydney and we moved to Sydney. Um, and so we lived in Sydney for a while um, and I worked at the NHMRC Clinical Trial Centre doing systematic reviews and economic evaluations. Um, for MSAT, mm. our Medicare Services Advisory Committee, working out what should and shouldn't be funded by Medicare. Um, so I did that and then fell pregnant and we had our first child in July of 2005. And in February of 2006, uh, they found out that they had actually probably a bit earlier, but um, in late 2005, early 2006, Jamie rang me and said, we've got this enabling grant from the NHMRC to set up a national centre for intensive care mm-hmm. research will you come back and set it up um, and my eldest was seven months old at the time and both my husband and my families are all in Melbourne so I really wanted to come back you know I wanted Jess to grow up with her cousins and mm. it was like this bit of a no-brainer it was this perfect <laughs> opportunity of oh my god I've been offered this amazing job yeah. um, so we moved back and my husband's work allowed him to work from Melbourne um, until he got a job in Melbourne so, yeah, so, and then, and, you know, that was called at the time the National Centre for Intensive Care Research, what is now the ANSIC RC. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was great. I mean, it was crazy busy that first year. It must have been incredible, you know, being right there from the beginning yeah. and seeing it being set up, yeah. Yeah. looking to the future. Yeah. yeah. It was it was amazing. It was extremely busy. So it was myself and then Daryl James Jones came on board very early and we did four or five grants in the space of about seven weeks we submitted to the NHMRC I look back at that time and never again Cringe. it's not a good it's not a good idea to, to rush grants but you know that was that we got funding for statins that year and that was yep. you know it was our we started and it was you know and, and from then on it's just been able to grow mm. but um it was look it was fascinating and you know back then Jamie and Ronaldo and um, Simon Finfer and John Myberg, you know it was the most amazing yeah. group of they were the four investigators on the enabling grant and it was the most amazing group of four to just work with. Mm. Um, you know, I was really lucky, actually, to just yeah. be able to work really closely with them and, and set up this fabulous place. So yeah, And so that's even... almost 13 years ago now. It is, yeah. <laughs> Did you think you'd still be here? <laughs> oh, gee, I don't think about it. I, think, I don't think I ever thought about it. Yeah. Um, I love it. Um, I wouldn't want to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I thought about it back then. I think we're just so busy yeah. that you just live day to moment day to and yeah. get through each moment. Um, you know, and and I think it, it's really hard to ever leave because you start a trial, you want to see it out, but then you start another, another trial one. before you finish that one and you always want to... Yeah, exactly. You know, you always want to get to the end and see them all out. So, um, you know, and we're pretty big now. We've got lots of staff and, you know, we've got... It's fascinating to watch, you know, having been involved in SAFE back when mm. SAFE happened, which I just 
think is the most amazing ICU trial. Um, it's fabulous now to look at ICU research across Australia and New Zealand and go, we've got the ANSIC RC, we've got the George Institute, we've got MRINZ, we've got these fantastic method centre and there's mm. now so much going on back from when we were just so little and yeah. just... You know, I look back at the grants we wrote back then and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were good. We're getting, we're getting better. We're getting better every year. And I think, too, you know, with the um, diversity of the staff who have come on board, too, you know, oh, like absolutely. you say, often at the, the beginning it was sort of, um, no, you know, quite a lot of medical staff involved. Absolutely. And now, you know, it just spans every discipline, oh, doesn't it? Absolutely. And even... You know, we're, we're lucky here at the ANSIC RC because we've got such a range. So we've got people who were ICU nurses who have come into research or people who were research coordinators who have come into research. Mm-hmm. But we've been lucky enough to get people who've been amazing project managers in other disciplines. So, for example, our team project manager, Janani, was, was an oncology research yeah. project manager. And it's fantastic because you actually get all of these different ideas mm-hmm. and all of these different skills that we don't have you know we're quite often blinkers on and we do our research Mm. and it's actually fascinating to have people bringing in other ideas from other disciplines and Mm. and as amazing as what as as I think what we do is I think there's always ways to improve so it's really good that we're gradually getting people from other disciplines Mm. other areas yeah I Um, think it's a very good point isn't it that ICUs come from a very grassroots sort of mm. research background and you know whereas often other disciplines maybe such as oncology have come from very pharma background yeah, absolutely and very different sorts of skill sets and yep. approaches but you know both sort of beneficial to each other oh absolutely yeah. and, you know and the things that just even being able to people who've worked in even other you know people who've come and worked with us who've come from other countries mm. and, and do things differently over there and just being exposed to different options we can only get better if that mm. happens so you know it's fantastic because we often obviously have um, we obviously often have visiting scholars come for a year um, you know we had we had Jacka Washner come mm. you know we've just had Nora for a year we've had Marcus Scrivers come out from Finland we had Ville Patilla come from Finland so having all of those people and all of their different experiences too is is fascinating because Mm. I mean I still think that we do I think we do in Australia and New Zealand the best critical care research in the world um Canadians might disagree but (laughs) we're not um, biased (laughs) a little bit biased but you know just having other people's input I think is just so valuable Mm. Mm. oh no it's great and I think you know coming back to having dietitians and physios oh, and nurses absolutely. involved and bringing that perspective you know real bedside perspective to it all oh so important so important and you know even now we um in some in a lot of our research so you know in our ECMO research we've got a consumer an ex-ECMO survivor on our management committees um in team we have a, a an ex-ICU patient um I actually think getting the patient's perspective is fascinating yeah. too you know yeah. um so how um for people who are thinking maybe of you know involving consumer representatives because it's something we should be doing um and it's something that in other countries they've really moved yeah. towards doing and in some jurisdictions are mandated to do mm. which is you know even right. better yeah. <laughs> um because it sort of takes that thinking out of it a little bit how have um, you know you gone about engaging people? How do you choose the right person? So or... I actually think that's really challenging in, in intensive care because for a lot of research specialties and a lot of, for example, the clinical trials networks in ACTA, there are patient groups. Mm. You know, there are patient support groups. And because critically ill patients are such a heterogeneous group, there's not typically a, you know, typically they might go and join a cardiac patient support mm. group or a respiratory patient support group or a dialysis patient or, support yeah. group or you know for whatever area and there's not generally a critical care one and so I think for other specialties it's really easy to tap into your consumer groups because mm. they exist mm. um, I don't really think it exists as much for ICU and I think it's really hard because my experience to date is that we get someone by typically convenience, someone we know has expressed interest, mm. um, you know, because I, I, I would love for there to be a better process whereby critical care survivors can register 
or you know mm. their interest in being in research and you know h- how we go about that I don't know but whether you even you know when you're enrolling in a trial you get a little thing saying if you want to you know yep if you're keen in the future if you're keen in the future <laughs> here's this um, group where, you know where you register your interest in being involved in follow-up research or being involved in setting up research projects mm. being involved in management committees you know so many different ways consumers can be involved because i actually think it's really hard at the moment mm. um you know because they leave icu and we don't see them yeah. they're gone yeah. and they're followed up by their ward staff and you know we don't they tend to leave icu and it's not out of sight out of mind because that's not true um but it's it's harder yeah to stay in contact and and I suspect too that for a lot of um, ICU survivors, the experience has been so awful mm, exactly. <laughs> and so traumatic that they're possibly not as uh, likely to come back to you. Correct, and say I'd like to be involved. Yeah. And you know, I think so many of them would like to. You know, mm. you you would know. Um, you know, when you do follow up with these patients six months a year down the track. The majority of them are so grateful yep. and so interested in what the research is about and, you know, reminding them about what, what the study they were in and what it was about and they're really interested and, and they're so grateful mm. to have survived. Exactly. And I actually think so many of them would be willing to mm. be involved and, and I'd love to, I mean, I'm just thinking about this as we speak, but to have a, some type of register of patients who who would be interested in mm. being involved in research as consumers Mm, I think that's a really good idea you know I think um, often maybe the ICU part of their hospital stay which might be a brief time it Mm. might have been months or even years um, is a very sort of I don't know it's a bit of a silo that they they come in they go out but then there's no necessarily necessarily follow-up or engagement and involvement I don't necessarily see anyone from ICU again no no Um. You know, and if they do, it's usually not good. Um, <laughs> yeah. You don't want to see the no. ICU nurse or doctor standing at the end of your bed again, do you? So, yeah, because I just think, and I know having just sat on NHMRC clinical trials panels, it's a really big thing that's considered, just even in grant applications, mm. what consumer involvement's there been. You know, have you know, in terms of your outcome selection, like are we measuring what matters to the people who it's actually affecting um, and I think maybe in intensive care we've been a little slower with that. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's a, well, how can they know? They don't understand critical illness, you know, and I think maybe that's probably just too big a simplification that mm. they do know what matters to them, you know. And it might be that, you know, we just have always, you know, typically, and we are moving away from this, but we've always measured whether they survive or not. Yeah. And we don't actually know that that's we assume that that's what matters to people who are critically ill and we think that if that was us that's what would matter to us but we actually don't know no you know we 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 i think that we could really benefit from a lot more consumer involvement in in everything we do in determining Mm. our outcomes in um in determining our outcomes in determining how we structure our trials um you know even just things as simple as what's written in our consent forms in our mm. patient information documents you know and are there key things that we're leaving out that patients would love to have known mm. that we you know that wasn't required by ethics and yeah. we haven't thought about yeah and I guess getting um that feedback on board early and being able to take it back to ethics exactly. and saying you know I know you've told us we must put this in but yeah you know, this is actually what our consumers our patients who come through each and every day have told us and it could be very powerful couldn't it absolutely what sorts of skills do you think those consumers need in order to be able to function effectively and and be you know an important part of the management committee that's a really tricky one um we've been really lucky with team our consumer rep on team is actually a doctor and is an icu registrar maybe now a junior registrar i should know that um, she, that may be when she started. She may actually <laughs> progress beyond that. That might be a few years ago. So, because I think one of the challenging things for consumer representatives on committees is, you know, the majority of our trials are multi centre. The majority of our meetings for management committees are via teleconferences or Zoom mm. meetings. We tend to move fairly quickly. And we tend to talk in speak that wouldn't be understood yeah. by a typical consumer. And I think that is really challenging. I do think that we probably need to adapt, that, that there needs to be a bit of a coming together. We need to adapt a bit how we speak mm. to enable consumers 
to feel like they have a voice on management committees. Um, and I think until we've done it enough times, I actually don't even really think we know what we need. Yeah. We've had the luck of the consumers I've been involved with have either obviously one has medical training or have just spent so long in the medical system mm. that they've picked up enough some that idea. they can, you know, tend to... Yeah. Um, because I think that there's so many people, you know, you know, whether it be... Um, and it doesn't even have to be someone who's been in ICU. It might be a relative of someone who's mm. been in ICU. Um, and I suppose some type of health background is, is helpful, but not necessarily. You know, someone might bring other skills. They might be have a background in, in law or have a background in um, so many options, you know, that, that can just bring so much. But really, they're there as bringing the consumer voice so I, mm. I think that we probably need to adapt a little bit because I do think it would be very daunting for a consumer when I think about all the teleconferences I sit in on yeah <laughs> one I think you'd feel it would be difficult to speak up um and two it would often be difficult to follow the conversation mm. because we do tend to move fairly quickly and speak in medical terms mm. particularly for many of our more you know when we have obviously ECMO yeah um teleconferences a lot of the discussion is often the wording used would be too difficult would be very difficult for a consumer to follow um but i think that's that's the the onus is on us Mm. to make it possible for consumers to participate and i guess it comes back to what the intent behind your study is you know having say for instance nick most survived there is is great if it's an ECMO study however nine times out of ten they probably have no um you know memory of being on ECMO ECMO. or being in the center at the time but if it's to do with their experience afterwards then that'd be great so and and what matters afterwards to them you know Mm. what what because especially with something like ECMO where we know that there is such high morbidity and it's the long-term outcomes Mm. that really matter you know going what really matters to you yeah I'm always fascinated having done lots of um, quality of life and other instruments in long-term follow-ups are things that patients bring up yeah. that aren't in the instruments. <laughs> and, you know, because I always say, is there anything else you'd like to let me know about how you're going? And so often patients, you know, you, you have patterns in certain mm. diseases and you're like, yep, we're not we're not yeah. recording that. But all of you were saying it's important. Yeah. Um, and it's... And it's really hard, isn't it? Because, like you say, for a study, you are given a set yep. instrument to use yep. as determined by the study management committee. And... You know, you sort of get to the end of all your telephone calls and you're like, oh, well, that was great, but it hasn't actually really yeah, told you haven't me much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, you know, I used to, in my TBI follow-ups, I used to do, um, and so we would do the GOSE, and it's, the, and it's what we still use in mm-hmm. all of our TBI studies. And it's a fabulous instrument, and I, and I actually really like it. But the number of times it doesn't capture things that were really important mm-hmm. to the patients, um, you know, sexual dysfunction I learned to actually ask about Mm. because it's just brought up by so many patients and there's another section in the GOSE but obviously a lot of patients aren't comfortable Mm. to just disclose that Mm. um because perhaps they feel it's not relevant or not what we want to know or and and, (laughs) and they feel uncomfortable um but I learned that because of so many patients that did bring it up that and then when you ask about it it, you know, it was astounding to me that how this this is something we that's v- very important to patients because often um, it's a sensitive issue for patients. And mm. for the number, I used to think, gee, for the number of people who actively bring it up with me, mm. it must really it must be, be an, an issue. issue. Yeah, um, you know, and it's not something we consider. Mm. You know, and there are, that's that's where I think maybe we need to improve is finding out what actually matters to the patients mm. down the track. Yeah, you know, as we move away from mortality, we talk so much about how we're moving away from mortality and we're moving to patient-centered outcomes. Mm. But if they're patient-centered, we should ask the patient. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, you phone up um, these elderly gents in their sort of late seventies and eighties, and you ask them about how many times a, a month they've washed their clothes oh, or, they're, they're or made their dinners, and you think, well, and they go, oh, none, because my wife yes, does well, it, and you think, well. So that's not changed, yes, has it? Correct. You know, <laughs> I when I did my respiratory medicine role at the Austin, when I did the non-invasive ventilation trial, and you know, obviously this is a long time ago, but one of the questionnaires we used as an outcome measure was the St George's respiratory questionnaire. It has a question about shoveling snow. 
but it's a quality of life questionnaire. You're not allowed to change the wording. Yeah. And so I'd always say, okay, I know this question is a bit ridiculous. Could you just imagine? <laughs> because I'm sorry, I'm in Melbourne. I'm working at the yeah. five sites around Melbourne. I'm pretty sure no one's shoveling snow. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was crazy, you know. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to actually think this through before we... I think that's the thing at a site level. You often get frustrated with yeah. what you're asked to use or, yeah. you know, the tools that you're given. As a researcher, how do you choose the appropriate tools? So I think, I mean, we do it as a, as a management committee and, and I think we do, we do it with multiple things. So we work out what, based on the literature, what do we think our intervention can impact? Mm. Um, because that's the most important thing to measure. You, you need to measure where your intervention is having an effect. Mm. So I think we look at, you know, what, what, what do we expect the intervention to, to affect and let's look at a measure of that. I think we look very much at what's been used in prior literature because you need to be able to make that comparison. You need to know. Mm. Um, and I think even if you've got an instrument that you think is better, I still think you would use both yeah. because you need to be able to compare to the previous literature and, and show, is my study showing similar things? Is my study showing different things? If it is, why might it be showing different things? Um we consider cost. We all, we have to consider cost. You know, these trials are funded on a shoestring and so instruments that have licences required and where those licences are based on the number of patients, often it's just not feasible. Yeah. Um, I think we consider um, the time it takes because obviously an instrument that's going to take half an hour to administer is very different to an instrument that's going to have five minutes, take yeah. five minutes. Now, obviously that... 30-minute instrument will often be a better instrument and will give you more detailed results. But you have to weigh up the, can I actually do that in 4,000 patients? Mm. I don't have the funding to be able to pay for a research coordinator or central assessor's time yeah. to spend that amount of time. Because it's not, and I think this is a really important thing I've learned over time, and I think all project managers and research coordinators know this, um, I think that perhaps the investigators often don't recognise that if you say the instrument takes five minutes, that doesn't mean that that follow-up takes you five minutes. Exactly. You'll often call the patient five times to work out a good yeah. time or to get onto them. And then often, you know, there's discussion at the start and discussion at the end. And yeah. so, you know, I do think I, I've found some of the core outcome sets that have been published really interesting, particularly mm-hmm. the times related to them, because I think, well, yes, if you call up and ask those five specific questions and then hang up. Yep. I agree, that's how long it, it will takes. Be five but, that's, but, yeah. but that's not how yeah. it works in reality. There's often numerous phone calls to get in touch with the patient. Then obviously you don't just ask questions. Yeah. You have to have a little bit of a exactly. discussion and remind them about the study and what it was yep. and particularly in intensive care because they've so often forgotten. Mm, mm. Um, you know, and then talk to them at the end and obviously they might have more questions and mm. this these people have been good enough to go in a research study that, you know, for the majority of the patients has no direct benefit to them. It's yeah. to benefit future patients. And I think that we owe them the benefit of our time. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think that the cost and time are the two biggest things mm. in, in when we choose our instruments because I would love, for example, when doing quality of life, I'd love to do the SF36 on everyone. But it's just not it's not yeah. feasible, which is why we do the EQ5D. Yeah. Because cost-wise, there's no licensing fee for not-for-profit mm research you still need a license they just don't charge you for it Mm. it's easy for the patients to understand it's quick to administer Mm -hmm. you know and the sf36 is a i I really like the sf36 but i do think that it takes a significantly greater time Mm. to administer but i also think the patients struggle with it don't understand the question yeah and, and and the scales swap around you know so sometimes the first option is like if you're yeah. the healthiest you know that's the better option and then you know three questions later actually the you know the most recovered patients will mm. have the last option and I just think patients struggle a little bit it's not just patients I'd say yeah. researchers <laughs> researchers as well. too. Yeah, yeah. So, you know there's a couple of instruments like that though isn't there you know and you swap around between naught to ten and then it's ten to naught and you think oh you know how, how am I meant to explain yeah. this to someone and yeah. it is and it's really hard and often when we do our follow-ups post-ICU, patients still have some cognitive impairment and it's not simple mm. to do. And you're not, we're not doing our studies 
like a lot of other studies, in a fairly stable population who've been actively involved in their care. Yeah. You know, our patients don't remember. No. They don't remember what happened to them in ICU. They remember that they were in ICU, but they don't remember about being in a trial. Yeah. You know, I think it is very different to a lot of other research mm. areas where the patients are actively involved. They're actively making the decision at the time to go in the research. Yeah. They recall being in it. They know... They remember what the study is about. They remember that they're going to be followed up and they ask, mm. you know, and I, critical care is so different mm. on that scale because the yeah. patients have forgotten before they leave hospital that they're yeah, in a trial, exactly. that, despite being told. Despite having been told and signed a consent correct. form. Correct. They, they, they yeah. don't remember. Yeah. Um, and I think our research coordinators are amazing at having really high follow-up rates mm. because... I do think it's a skill that you learn from doing lots of follow-ups about how to approach that conversation because you go in, you learn to go in how to talk at the start of the conversation to the patient to sort of remind them, now, do you remember you were in intensive care at this hospital? Now, while you're in there, you might not remember. You know, you learn how to introduce it to a patient so that they don't because I think all of us will remember the first couple of times we did it with a patient asked what do you mean I was in a study you learn pretty quickly how to and all of a sudden avoid that reaction to make sure you've got the right yeah, patient yeah, yeah, exactly Ooh, that? Um, yeah do you think that's because um you know uh, the majority of our research coordinators not all um in Australia and New Zealand but the majority come from an ICU clinical background of some description and so possibly have a really good understanding yeah. of, of what these patients are you know experiencing what they've gone through I do think it it is a particularly challenging role to work in ICU research having not worked clinically mm. in ICU I don't think that means you can't do it I just think it's a mm. I just think it's much more challenging for those people and they have to do a lot more work yeah to I think that when you've worked clinically with patients in ICU and you understand what they've been through, mm. what what's occurred. And and I do think too that there's times that patients ask questions. Mm. Um, and I think if you've worked clinically, you can often understand what they're asking because the questions are usually phrased quite strangely <laughs> and you get used to what they what they mean. And because they have um, strange memories of ICU and often mm. things that you know, because of the medications they've been on and things, it's often a distorted memory of ICU. And and I do think it's challenging. Um, I think that's, you know, like you were saying, that comes back to how long does a follow-up call take? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because it's almost discussions, it's like how long does um, a consent conversation take when you approach a patient um, after they've been in ICU? Because often what you're doing is talking about delirium, hallucinations, odd thoughts that all the experience that they've had. And I also think too that when you go to them as a researcher, I I I, look I may be wrong here, but I feel like patients feel like you have the time Mm. to talk to them. And I often think that if they are followed up by an ICU liaison or you know, whether if the ICU at the hospital has a follow-up team that is routine to go and see the patient, I think that that's the patient often feels like, just like when when a team rounds, you know, that maybe they don't, you know, when you're sitting there one-on-one with them, it's often easier for the patient to open up and ask the questions that they really want the answers to. And I think that we often end up doing that. Mm. Um, it's a very interesting observation. Um, you know, when you've got a team of seven people in front of you, I think it's perhaps a little bit more daunting. To, yeah. You have to be a pretty strong person to mm. become a pretty confident person to ask questions in that situation. That's so you know, we have our poor little residents who are scared to ask questions. What's the poor patient going to do? Let alone the patient. Yeah. So we've moved a little bit towards having um, some more centralised follow-up yep. for a lot of our studies. And so how do you think that works in terms of, you know, unearthing all these maybe other things that are going on? Yeah, so I think it's it's really challenging. So the researcher in me says to get the right answer, we need central follow-up. And I, and I really do believe that. And I do believe that the patients go in the research to get the right answer. Mm-hmm. And... So I do believe that central follow-up is essential to get the right answer because that's why the patients are doing it. Mm. They don't want to do it and then have too much noise 
to be able to get the right answer. They've gone in it with such goodwill, fully aware that it's only likely to benefit future patients. You know, we're quite clear about that Mm -hmm. in our consent form, that there's likely to not be a direct benefit to the patient. So they go in this research for people in the future. And so I do think we then have a duty to do the best that we can to get that answer for the future patients because that's why the patients have done it. it. They've done it to help the future patients. I do think that we do lose aspects with central follow-up, but I think that without a doubt, you know, and I think that we need to train our central assessors really well. And, you know, off, you know, I've done central follow-ups um, for multiple mm. studies. Where your central follow-up person can have an IC background, I think that that's just, just such a bonus. And I think that wherever we can, that should be our aim because I think that patients do have questions and having some understanding of what they're asking. And I've had, I've had multiple times where I have done central follow-ups and gone back to the site. Mm. Um, I've had a patient yell at me six months later. Oh, really? got, I was worried the patient was suicidal, so I contacted mm. the site, who then sent, you know, there was, yeah. you know, there is obviously we have processes in place. You made them come out six months ago. Oh, no. And I said to him, look, I was really concerned, you know, and, and he was fine and he did the follow-up. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do think that there is a real benefit of site follow-up that benefits the patient directly. But then the research room, he says, but the whole reason the patient was in the study was for future patients. And so as much as they don't get that, uh, I think that the interaction with the patient is much better when it's done by the site to the detriment of the research study. And then part of me goes, well, the patients are in there to, for the research study. That's got to be the primary goal. Um, and so I think we do give things up, but the prim- we have to go back to, well, what's the priority? Mm. And the priority is to answer the research question. And that's what the patients want the priority to be too. Yeah. They've gone in that research for the benefit of future patients. Mm. And we have to give the research the best chance of doing that. And I think that the way we do that is by central follow-up. Mm. Mm. And, and it's unfortunate that I think then the interaction with the patient isn't as yeah. beneficial as it could be. Um, and I think we need to be really aware of that when we're doing central follow-up and train our central follow-up assessors really well mm. so that where we do need to go back to the site, it does happen. Um, and that they do have enough background information that there is that initial discussion with that you know, with that, like we all do at a site level, you know, with that, now you were in this hospital and you were in ICU and you might not remember being in ICU, you mm. know, and having a really good script for the central assessors. Yeah. And even, you know, having, and, and I know that we do do this here, although I don't know if we do it with ICU trained people, um, you know, having an ICU person with clinical ICU experience doing the first 10 follow-ups mm. with a central assessor shadowing them. Mm. To, mm. to hear how we interact with patients post-critical care and what sorts of conversations mm. happen and that type of thing. Yeah, because um, often it's the unexpected, isn't oh, it? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And having really strong <laughs> protocols in place, distress patient mm. protocols, all of those types of things, having really good protocols in place to deal with unexpected events during phone calls, I think is, is really important. Mm. Um, yeah, it's sort of finding the trade-off, isn't it? You know, certainly... One of the things in New Zealand that we, you know, need to be able to show when we go for mm-hmm. ethics, particularly for um, studies involving unconscious patients, is looking at the patient's best interests yep. and the benefit to the patient. And um, often that comes down to those follow-up conversations yep. Yep. because, you know, we're picking up on issues. And, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, finding that they haven't had clinic appointments yep. or, you yep. know, all those yep. sorts of things, and wounds it, and things. Absolutely. And that's why I think central follow-up is so important mm. that that it can't just be the questions. Yeah. If things come up, that needs to be fed back to the site. Um, you know, I feel like there should be, I mean, as I said, it's all time and money, mm. but, you know, whether there should be a routine email that goes back to a site after follow-ups, mm. which just says no issues identified, yep. you know, and that's just a, it can you know, obviously from time point of view, whether that's just a, we just, you know, whether it's a routine pushed email where mm. if there were no issues, follow-up completed, no issues identified, and then if there weren't, 
you know, if there were issues, mm. then the site can be, you know, and Maybe even if follow up and even if there's just a click box of you choose um, follow up completed, no issues identified, follow up completed, um, following issues identified, no further follow up required, mm. you know, required yep. or follow up completed, following issues identified, further contact via mm. site required. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So that yeah. the central assessor is literally clicking a box yep. and typing in what an issue was. Yeah. But part of me goes, that is the one concern. Obviously, I have many concerns about site versus central follow-up, but I do strongly believe in central follow-up for the purpose of the research. But I do think that knowing that there is an avenue, mm. that patients don't fall through the cracks with central yeah. follow-up, I think that's really important, Yeah, that, 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 there, that we know that there is a system. And I think that with think there's a system at the moment where you know this the the central follow-up person will but i'm not sure how well we regularly assess mm. that i know that there are always samples of calls listened to and that type of thing mm. but whether we should have some type of process where the site gets some feedback yeah some feedback which is very brief and very and and you know effectively automated mm. It sort of closes the loop but it a little does bit, close the it? loop and they yeah. go oh yep good that patient's been followed up yeah and, Something to work on for the future. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I'll have to listen back to this. Yeah, exactly. And... <laughs> I'll provide you with a what did, I, what did I think I wanted to do? <laughs> so we talked very briefly, you touched on um, sort of the health economic yep. side of studies and things, and this is your big baby now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So tell us a bit about health economics and why is health economic evaluation an important thing Possibly, probably for most studies. Absolutely, <laughs> no, if no. you're looking at designing a trial. So, I, so we we all care, and I spend my life talking to people about this. We all care about the patient outcome. There's no one questions it. And what I say to people when they say, "Well, I don't," and I've had multiple people, particularly a long time ago when I used to give talks, say, "Well, I don't care what how it costs. I just need to do the best for my patient," and I say. I understand that. So what do you say to Mr. Joe Blow in 20 patients' time when you've run out of money? Mm. You can't do the best for them. Yep. So it can't be about the single patient because you have to do the best for all of your patients. And if you spend all the money on this one patient, Mr. Joe Blow in 20 patients' time, you've got no money left, you're not going to be happy. And there are people higher up making the decisions for you, but do you really want them to be making the decisions? You know medical and clinical and allied health staff you know believe and, and, and probably rightly that they know what what is best for the patient but if they don't consider cost then someone higher up is making the decision mm-hmm. about what they actually have access to and so we don't have you know as much as my ch- children think we have a money tree we really don't have a money tree and as much as you might want to help that patient the best you can, you have to think about the patient down the track. Mm. It can't just be about that patient at the time because then you're saying to the family of a patient down the track, I'm sorry we spent all that money and I can't put your patient on ECMO. You know, it's not... It, it, there has to be... It has to be a consideration every time. Mm. And no matter how good a treatment is, if we don't consider the economics, then someone down the track will miss out. Mm. We can't do everything. And yeah. the problem with critical care is... So many things we come up with are more expensive. You know, we're really good at inventing new technologies and yep. they are really expensive and they're resource intensive and often you know, they require significant staffing time. Um, and it has to be considered because you have to think, well, what else could I do with that money? Could I open another ICU bed? And is that actually a better use of that money? Will I save more people? By opening another, by funding and opening another ICU mm. bed, and that's the thing you have to think about: is that there are other ways you can spend that money, yeah. and it might be that opening another ICU bed is a better option, mm. and that you'll save more people. And it's just being really explicit to people about that's what it is. You know, I always like to explain it to people in terms of the patient down the track yeah. that you have to say no to yeah. because you spent all the money. You know, or in terms of the well, hang on, your other option would be to open another ICU bed. Yeah. <laughs> Do you is that actually a better option? And so I think that it's so, you know, I got into this because we weren't doing it. And I was, I, I, as I've said already earlier, I think the SAFE trial is one of the greatest trials ever conducted in any medicine, not mm-hmm. just ICU. I 
just think it's an astoundingly amazing study for when it was conducted and how it was conducted. But I was frustrated by the fact that there wasn't mm. an economic evaluation completed, um, completed. And there's a lot of uh, deeper issues around albumin and it's not just about the price of albumin. Um, but I do think that a lot of people, a lot of clinicians that I've met in different countries and, 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 and um, different levels of seniority use... Not, not so much now, but back after the SAFE study, you know, 10 years ago, used SAFE as a rationale to keep using albumin mm. because, well, it's the same. <laughs> um, and that frustrated me because obviously from a healthcare system point of view, albumin is so much more expensive. Mm. Um, and that's what got me into health economics, the frustration that people are using this, these clinical outcomes as a justification to keep using something that is so much more expensive. Yeah. Um, do you think clinicians at the bedside sort of worry about that side of it though, the long term cost or no. well, no, you know, so even the short term cost? I can't speak to what they think about. My interpretation of what they think about is that no, they don't worry about it. And certainly what's been fed back to me when I've given talks and things. But the fact is, and this is what I say to them, they have to, because mm. or else someone higher up who's not clinical is making that decision. Yeah. And they're making that decision without any real understanding of the interventions you know what what drugs are available in hospitals is not decided by the bedside staff mm, you know it's decided mm. by your drug formulary committee who often don't have a full understanding of the clinical context that that is given in and and why it may be beneficial and if use of certain things spirals out of control often hire up people in hospitals will just shut it down and make it not available anymore and you know that's the consequence of not thinking about it, yeah. is that it's suddenly not available and all those future patients don't get it because you didn't use it in a rational way and limit who was receiving it and, mm. you know, to the people who would most benefit and that type of thing. And yeah. So it's a really hard slog, but I think they have to think about it. And, you know, it's all, it's all about, you know, that's how we change things over time. We get back to nursing students and medical students and, we, and allied health students and we train them when they're students. You know, it's all about... You know, we talk about all that research that shows it takes 17 years to translate research findings into practice and, and that that's what, you know, it's the same thing though. You have to, these mm. costs have to be known and we have to do the economics and people have to be aware of what the impact is because otherwise someone else is going to make the decision for them. Mm. And I think from a um, sort of a hospital perspective or clinician perspective, you know, you can fairly easily find out the cost of things on a day-to-day basis while somebody's in your ICU but I guess what we never really take into account is that long-term health economic picture which is what we capture more when we do research and follow up our patients. Absolutely and so we'll often find that you know while something may happen while it might look good in the really short term the long-term morbidity costs you know the additional hospitalizations or the time off work or the carer requirements or you know um, long-term hemodialysis there's so Mm. many things that we need to consider if we you know I always always like to say when I give talks okay well if we want to it's not about saving money because if we want to save money we just kill everyone they're really cheap if they're dead you know (laughs) and clearly we all agree that that's probably not appropriate so you know it's not about saving money it's about using the money we have the best way we can and and that we have a finite pool of money and there's all different ways we can allocate that and what's the best way we can allocate it to get the best outcomes mm-hmm. and that it can't just be about the outcomes in ICU either yeah. because we're not, a, we're not a silo as much as we maybe act as a bit of a <laughs> silo. We're not a silo. These patients don't become different people when they leave ICU. They're mm. still the same person. They still want good outcomes. Yep. And that we that's why we have so, you know, moved gradually moving so well to long-term outcomes mm. because and and knowing what the you know what are the costs after hospital because often just looking within the hospital and not looking what happens after they leave mm. can give you a very distorted view of what's happening and we've had some good examples of that through research haven't we you know that um is thinking along maybe the lines of decro study oh, absolutely yeah. where where we look at short-term <laughs> outcomes that that 
don't translate into what we think they'll translate mm. to. Surrogate outcomes, you know, we know about the problems with surrogate outcomes and it's the same economically, that looking at a short-term in hospital or particularly in ICU viewpoint mm. may create may give you the wrong answer. Yeah. And you may interpret the data incorrectly. Not that you're interpreting the data incorrectly, but the overall picture. Yeah. You're not it's obtaining the over- it's quite different mm. when you when you have your siloed view. Mm. And that it's so important that we and to know that we aren't the only that the healthcare system has a finite pool of money to spend and we might want it all. Um, but the fact is we've got to share it around. And I'd like to know that when I, you know, am being treated for some condition that will never require critical care, that there is some money <laughs> yes, left to spend yeah. <laughs> because we haven't spent it all. Yeah. yeah you know, and exactly. we we are very you know, we are so expensive mm, mm. in ICU with good reason we mm. save people's lives but it can't just be about saving their life yeah. because that money could be used elsewhere you know and we're getting better at it you know we're getting significantly better at not accepting certain people for ICU mm. who's who's you know likely outcomes you know we're going to spend a huge amount of money for what is likely to be a a very poor outcome and a but I still think that when those decisions are made, it's mainly based that the cost isn't really considered no. in that. That it's just based on well, hang on, their quality of life is going to be if they survive, their quality mm. of life is going to be so poor that yeah, we shouldn't admit them to ICU. Um, and I don't think cost comes into it. And I really believe it has to, and I really believe it will. Mm. But it's a long way over off. time. It's a long <laughs> way off. And so you're doing your PhD. Yes. <laughs> yes, Which for is a very long time. Kind of circles back to, you know, you, and um, but involved with health economic evaluation of one of the studies that has been carried out within the ANZAC CTG community yes. in the last few years. Yes. Do you want to tell us a bit about your PhD and what your research question is yep. to start out with? So I, my PhD is an economic evaluation alongside the ARISE trial. So it's doing a cost-effectiveness analysis of early goal-directed therapy compared to standard care in patients presenting to the emergency department with severe sepsis. Great that. title. <laughs> I don't actually think that's the title. That's just what yeah. it is. You've got the cover page. Hopefully, right? hopefully, it's got a little bit more of a catchy title than that. Um, so, and and the reason I oh, there's a there's a whole bunch of reasons I chose to do that. But as I explained already, I just think that the economic component was a component that we were really missing in the mm. ANZIC CTG. That we do such amazing research, and we have such an amazing group of researchers throughout Australia and New Zealand. And back when I started my PhD in two thousand and nine. <laughs> Just say it quickly. Get it out. Um, that you know we weren't we weren't doing economic evaluations and and we're becoming much better now at having economic evaluations alongside our trial and a lot of that relates to our funding bodies which require them now. It's mm. very difficult in Australia and I believe New Zealand to have any a project funded if um, you don't have a planned economic evaluation. Mm. Um, so that's fantastic, but that's the reason I started it, is that we were doing this amazing research mm. without considering the economics alongside it. So I thought, well, we need to do that. Mm. So um, hence why I started my PhD. Um, and how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> most, <laughs> most people here, we're here at the Anzac at the moment, and most people here at the Anzac know to just avoid that question. <laughs> it's going okay now. Good. It will be finished. I have to finish it by the middle of next year. That's like a university yeah. requirement so um, <laughs> I mean there's been multiple children in the middle and things yeah. but um, that's not an excuse um, I don't have a good excuse as to why it's not finished I get busy with other things and and you know I'm I like to help others and so I spend a lot of my time on other projects which are nearing completion and require a lot of work and and you know, I think me as a person, I don't say no enough and I want to help others and I want to get the research studies finished and it's really easy to push my own stuff mm. to the back and get this other, you know... Do other people's get work other, first. Yeah, do other things and and there's probably a lot of pressure on me at times to do other things mm. um, and, you know, there's often really short time frames with things being presented and therefore they have to be finished yeah. and... So, you know, that's, it's not an excuse because I don't, I don't have an excuse. It should be finished and it's not. 
but I do love the other stuff I've done mm-hmm. and it is my own fault. I do I remember many, many years ago, we're probably talking close to fifteen years ago, going into Ronaldo Belomo's office at the Austin and he had little post it notes that say no everywhere and I really think I need those. <laughs> so that everywhere I look it just says no. So no. when someone asks me something, all I see is the word no everywhere. Um, and I have some fabulous support people around me who tell me to say no. Mm. Um, and then I perhaps have others who have not yet reached that point where they need me <laughs> to say no and keep giving me more keep things. asking you to so, do things. So um, yeah. it's, it's a real challenge and it's something I don't do as well as I should. Mm. And I'm also a mum of three and they will always be my priority. So my PhD will always come second to them. I only work part-time. Um, my husband and I made a decision that he would work full-time and that I would primarily be the home carer with the children and he travels a lot um, for work. So I will always put my children first mm. and that makes obviously then that PhD falls further yeah. down there and, and that's really challenging and, you know, the the way this is going to get finished is that there's a crux point and I have to, there's have no to. choice. Yeah. Um, and that disappoints me a bit. I'm disappointed in myself that... I haven't, um, I'm disappointed in myself that I haven't finished it in a, in a better time frame. I love all the other stuff I've done. I look at, you know, I look at the studies we've finished and I look at some of the fantastic things we've done and, and that makes me really pleased. Mm. Um, but then I'm also disappointed in myself because I think you could have finished it and done all these other things. Um, I guess though you just, you know, you can't be hard on yourself like that. Like you say, you know, life is very busy. Yeah. And you just kind of have to try and reconcile along oh, the way, don't you? A- absolutely. Prioritise as you go. And so with regards to my family work balance, I am completely comfortable with all the decisions I've made. Um, and I think you have to be. I think you have to trust the decision. Mm. You, have, you have to just make them and not regret them. And so I certainly don't regret any of those decisions, you know. I coach my son's basketball team. I coach my daughter's netball team. I run my youngest's net set go program. You know, I I am on committees at school and I love mm. doing that and I wouldn't change that. Mm. I probably, on reflection, wouldn't take so much on at work. Yeah. And it's challenging when you've been here from the start. You hold a lot of corporate knowledge that people want to tap into simply mm. because you've been here mm. from mm. day one. And I think that... That's on me though. That's it's on me to say no. You know, I don't blame other people for wanting me to keep being involved. You know, they they, they ask, they don't force most of the time. Um, <laughs> you know, so that that is on me, and I think that's the bit that disappoints me mm. is that you know it's like a it's like a carrot being dangled in front of you. Oh yeah, that, that sounds really good. I'd like to do yeah, that. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and it's you know you've just got to sometimes go no no. Yeah. I don't have to be involved in everything. It's okay. I can say no. Um, it is a really hard decision though, isn't it? Because yeah. you know you're sort of at that point too where you see like you say all these amazing opportunities yeah. that yeah. you want to grab hold of yeah. because that might be the next big thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's yeah, it's tough. Mm. Um. So first post-it note going up this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, there's been post-it notes. I've been good. I got better at saying no. I said no to, I said no to one thing and it back. My problem is when I started saying no to things, something backfired quite badly and because I didn't do it. And so I have that playing on my mind. That, yeah. Oh, you know, I just, so, but I have to, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I say this regularly and I, I'm lucky that I have close friends here at work who say to me, no, no, don't do that, mm-hmm. um, which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's on me and I'm the one who needs to just do it and finish it. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I, the Arise team is a fabulous team mm-hmm. to work with. Sandy Peak is when was the most wonderful chair of Arise and worked so hard and it was such a hard study. And mm-hmm. Sandy and Belinda, how, you know, that was a really challenging study and they got... Got, they got it done and they you know and so I'm desperate to get this done yeah. because I think well it, the Arise team was such an amazing team and it was a really challenging study mm. you know an ED led study is challenging for ICU people to, yeah. to do you know yeah. um, and I and I think we we did such a wonderful job and that that is what's driving me to go come on you've got to get it done because the all of the sites did such an amazing job in what was mm. a challenging study and, and produced this amazing result, you yeah. know, and, and then the subsequent IBDMA with promise and process and so I just need to get with it. It'll be good. <laughs> It'll be good. <laughs> we'll get there.
And so you've obviously built up a team of support around you with your supervisors. One of the things that we've talked, I've talked about with other people is, you know, how do you choose supervisors? Um, and obviously yours have been around for a little while now. Mine have been around. <laughs> have you got the same supervision team? Yep, I have yep. the same supervision team. And I chose my supervision team back when I started based on, I obviously needed critical care and I needed economics. Mm-hmm. And so I chose two people that I had worked with and respected and um were an amazing researcher and an amazing economist Um, and I suppose I haven't and look uh, it's difficult to know whose role it is I haven't been in contact with them enough and I think that's why it's so easy for it to just fall under the wayside is that but you know I'm an adult it's my responsibility Mm -hmm. to get it done Um, but I do think that you really have to be careful with how you choose your supervisors. I think mine's probably a slightly unique situation in that I was already, I already had a research track record. I was already heavily involved in research when I started a PhD. And so I think for a lot of people, certainly a lot of the PhD students I work with, they come in and they start their PhD and they don't get involved mm-hmm. in other research until their PhD is finished. Yeah. And so I have the difficulty of all of these other things being available while I'm completing my PhD. And most of that being involved with my supervisors, so that's challenging. Mm. Um, and I and I do think that sometimes it's maybe better if your supervisors are a little bit removed from the other things you do. Mm. Um, and I also think that I always say to people, I love teaching. I, I I'm a maths tutor, and I and I love teaching. And I always say to people, the best teachers aren't necessarily the smartest. And just like I would say the best supervisors aren't necessarily the best researchers. You know, I think that there's a whole different skill set that can really be helpful in choosing a supervisor and someone who you feel like you can approach, someone who you think from a personality point of view you gel with and mm-hmm. that, that you know, they'll, they'll be able to give you encouragement when you need it and sort of give you a bit of a push when you need it, but they'll also know when to back off and... And that type of thing, I think finding the right dynamic. Mm. And so someone who was a fabulous supervisor for one person mm. might not be a good supervisor for another person. Yeah. And I think that's really important to recognise. But I also think it's really important to get feedback from people mm. before you choose your supervisors. Get feedback from other people they've supervised. Mm. Understand what their strengths and weaknesses as a supervisor are. Because often you know these people as researchers and they can be amazing researchers and that there might be things that they're great at with supervision and things that perhaps they struggle with with supervision. And I think if you go on with your eyes open and you're aware, then that's a much better way to Mm. choose a supervisor. And it's really important to not choose who you think people think you should choose. Mm. You've got to choose who is best for you and who's Mm. going to work well for you. Um, And that might be someone who hasn't supervised a lot before or it might be someone who is perhaps a step down from who you were mm. thinking and um, that type of thing. But I think it's really important to to get that bit right. Mm. Like of any decision in your PhD, f- you know, have people um, find out other people they've supervised and get their feedback and work out if that's going to be a good match for you. Mm. I mean, it might have worked, someone might tell you they're fantastic because they really pushed me every day or because, you know, mm. because they just left me to my own devices and you might know, well, hang on, which one's going to work yeah. for me and which one's not and finding out because how working with someone before doesn't necessarily mean you know how that supervisor-student relationship will work yeah. and, and I just think that getting that, a PhD is huge. You know, I think having done so much research I went into a PhD thinking, well, it'll be fine. Yeah. You know, I, I, already do, I already do lots of research, you know. But it's all on you. Yeah. And, you know, we do research in teams. Mm. All of our research is done in teams. And as much as you do sort of have a team with your PhD, mm. it's all on you. Yeah. You're leading it. You have to – you're moving forward. Every step is taken by you. And it's very different. And I do think that you need to go in with your eyes open. Mm. When I started my PhD – um, Jeff Presnell, who is a very good friend, said to me, it will all fall apart at some stage. And I remember being so grateful when everything just sort of wasn't going where I wanted it, mm. going, no, no, that's okay. This is meant, you know, this this happens to everyone. You know, I think that 
just being aware of some things like that. Mm. You know, I, I'm forever grateful to Jeff for just saying, That's you're okay. amazing at what you do and you're going to be fabulous, but trust me, it will all, it always, you know, and just going, yeah, it's okay if that happens too. Mm. You know, having someone just point things like that out to you and just, I mean, it was probably a throwaway line from Jeff, but I remember it to this day. You know, we're nearly 10 years later and I'm like, it's okay, it'll be okay. Yeah. And it isn't, you know, nothing ever goes, I'm so used to, I'm quite an organised person and, you know, things get done and I have lists and everything, you know, boxes get ticked and, you know, it's hard when it goes wrong, mm. when you're so used to things not going wrong. Yeah. And and I think recognising that that is likely to happen and that the team atmosphere you're used to isn't the same mm. in a PhD and that yeah. it really is new and... And that those relationships sort of change over time too oh, or, absolutely. you know, with whatever's going on at the time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're hard. PhDs are hard. I say to some, you know, anyone when they're going to do it, be really sure. Mm. And pick something you really are passionate about. Don't do a topic just because someone said, oh, I've got this topic, you should do that. Yep. Because they're really hard to do. Yeah. And if it's something you're passionate about, you can do it. And I think if you're just taking a topic because you want to do a PhD and someone said, here's a topic, it's just fraught with disaster. And, and find something you really want to do and find people you really want to work with because that's your best chance of finishing. <laughs> Not that I can talk <laughs> at the moment. No, well, come next, what is it, July? Yeah, June, 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 July. June. I should actually find we'll the date. It, it will be done. We'll make it June. Yeah. <laughs> and then it'll be done by July. Exactly. <laughs> no, we look forward to seeing it in yes. lights. Yes. And um, yes. no, you know, knowing all the hard work that's gone on behind it. Yeah. And like you say, not just, you know, um, on your own behalf, but the whole team that's oh, behind absolutely. you too is um, massive. So no, we look forward to that. So it's probably possible. some really good advice <laughs> to finish the podcast yeah. on. <laughs> and um, thank you very much for My your pleasure. time. It's My pleasure. interesting Thanks. chatting. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. Fascinating to hear more about why we should undertake health economics as part of our trials in order to understand the importance of long-term morbidity and the bigger picture for our patients. Also to understand the effect of interventions in order to use available resources, particularly money, the best way we can. Can't wait to hear that her PhD has been awarded. Hopefully that won't be too far off. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. Until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success. Music